I think I was supposed to talk first and then we were going to sit. Isn't that what we usually do, Lewis? No, we sit first and then we talk. Okay. Well, everyone was sitting so well, I thought we might just as well go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) But my first question is, um, is about sitting always. How is your sitting? Are you are you relatively comfortable? Um, can can you manage on the cushion or the chair without um, being completely distracted by how it feels? Um, if there's so much discomfort, then it's very hard to um, enjoy your sitting. And this is um, a practice of enjoyment, first of all. So we can talk a bit about um, sitting. If, if there are questions about that, I always like to address those first, um, just to make sure everyone is, is settled in their, pra- in their sitting part of the practice. Everybody's comfortable, (laughs) relatively comfortable. I thought I would talk tonight a bit about um, a subject that keeps coming up in almost every conversation I've had this week, and that is fear. Um, I think we're all experiencing the fear that's uh, pervading our world right now, our, our, this world, our American world for the first time, really, since um, when I was a little girl, I, I, I remember the Second World War, and that was very scary. People were truly frightened then. Um, even in the Midwest, where I grew up, they had lights out and wardens who went out and checked, and you had black c- curtains that you pulled over the windows so no one could see light at night. It was a very frightening time with lots of stories going around about invasions happening any time. It creates a very particular kind of mind which everyone begins to share and it tends to uh, feed itself, especially if because it's such a visceral reaction, um, it's very hard to think clearly once fear kicks in. And so we can um, nourish it and enhance it in each other. And, of course, our world is posited on um, keeping us excited about things anyway, because that's what sells newspapers and the things they advertise on television. So if there's going to be a hurricane, well, we can get all excited about that and et cetera, et cetera. But how to, in our practice, Um, face fear is very, very interesting and challenging subject. Our tendency is to push it away as much as far away as possible um, and just assume that it will go away if we mm, see another movie or take a walk or see a friend. And in a sense, it does. But until we're able to actually face it, and our practice is based on facing it, 
it meaning not just fear, but everything that we are, everything that rises up in us, to actually sit face to face with it, and so be clear. I've been reading uh, some of the old Buddha stories. Um, I love these New pub, this new publication of the discourses that have come out in the last few years with those very thin papers, those beautiful pages that turn so easily and it's so full of so many wonderful stories. There's not a lot about fear that i found. There's one whole chapter about um, somebody asking Buddha, how he could stand to go into the dark, dangerous jungle. How scary it would be to go into the dark, dangerous jungle. And Buddha said, mm, indeed, it's very scary in there. Um, there are lots of snakes and tigers. And, and he said there are special places that are even more scary than others. You know, certain trees that you could sit under that really freak you out. And... Um, sort of marshy, gushy places that, with mist over them. And he said, those are the ones that I seek out. That's where I go to, to face it, to face the fear. Buddha wrestled a lot with Mara. Mara being the sort of tempter, uh, kind of version of the devil in a way. Um, the one who keeps coming and saying, Mm, you don't have to do that. Why don't you go off and do something easier? Uh, um, when he was sitting under the tree, the enlightenment tree, uh, Mara came and uh, tried to lead him out of there many, many times in many ways. Uh, brought his gorgeous daughters along and had them dance for him and try to lure him out from under the tree. Offered him money and power and glory and all the things that we lust after. And he withstood it. Buddha did. But Mara kept coming back. Over and over in Buddha's life, Mara kept showing up. And I always think he became, they became kind of friends. There's even a story where Mara showed up um, and knocked on the door and one of the disciples saw who it was and he said, Buddha's not home to you. And uh, Buddha said, hey, who's that at the door? And the disciple said, it's just Mara. It's just, you don't want to see Mara. I'm sending him away. And Buddha said, oh no, my old friend Mara, please come in and we'll have a cup of tea. So it's a very beautifully balanced kind of, of way with those forces of us, those, those powerful forces in us that are always luring us or dragging us away. Or, and in some of the stories, um, Mara shows up to a bunch of, of women nuns, bhikkhunis, and one by one um, offers some kind of delicious um, Temptation, you could say. Oh, why don't you go and get married? You don't want to sit out here like this. Or 
You could get rich if you really wanted to. Or don't you miss your husband? And each time the, the bhikkhuni would say, mm, sorry, Mara, sorry, no, I've determined to stay put. Very touching. It's, it, it's such, an, a, a, such an imperfection practice, you could say. No, it's, it's not polished and shining. It's just everyday struggle, bit by bit, breath by breath, moment by moment. So fear, Buddha says, we can deal with if we take refuge in Buddha. And he said, if we're not able to take refuge in Buddha, we can take refuge in Dharma, in the truth, in the teaching itself. And he said, well, but if you're not able to take refuge in Dharma, you can take refuge in Sangha in the whole support of everything and everyone that holds us and cares for us. The each other of us, you could say, Sangha. And he said, if you can't find a way to take refuge in Sangha, take refuge in virtue. Isn't that interesting? Take refuge in virtue. We can't find Buddha can't find dharma, can't find sangha, we can always find our virtue straight to the heart. It's why there's such emphasis on precepts, the simple precepts, not lying and killing and stealing, ruining ourselves with excess, just being lovingly careful of our lives and attending to our lives. We say to each other, take care of yourself. I think that's what it means. That's what we mean when we say that. Take care of your virtue. Take care of what is most precious in what, in what you can take refuge in, no matter what. It's not easy. And any door we open in any neighborhood is opening the door to a soap opera in which the struggle um, is ongoing. But if we're able to take refuge in virtue, fear has a very different flavor. If we can come home to ourselves the things that we fear out there, um, it's not the same. Often we're afraid of the future, very afraid of what's going to happen next. And that's the thing that can build and build into one big sort of mm, messy thought after another messy thought. Well, this might happen, and then this might happen, and then what would I do about that? And then I couldn't do that, so then this would happen. And before we know it, we have an incredible story, none of which is true. And that can be very scary. If we're able to stay put, stay where we are in our mind, 
to stay in the place where we actually are. The room, the air, the ground under our feet. We're always somewhere. And that somewhere is who we are, actually. We are where we are. It seems sort of boring and and we tend to want to find other places to be when we're where we are. It's not so interesting often. It's just us. It's just all of us in the soup together, drifting around, living. But if we're able to really be where we are, we begin to notice each other. We begin to see, not only uh, feel our own virtue, but the virtue that, that we meet day by day. So many faces, so many lives that we meet. So many trying to take refuge also. If we're afraid we can't meet each other, we don't dare. And it's one of the deepest problems for the human race that without being able to trust each other, we can't very well live with each other. And not being able to live with each other uh, keeps us living in a, in a murky cloud. It's, it's an artificial cloud. It's just a function of thought. It's just ideas. So my take on Buddhism is that it's scientific and we should test all of our ideas every idea that we have, every moment. Is it really true? Is there something to be afraid of right now, right here? Is there someone there? Who? On the other hand, it's wonderful to get frightened. I just took my granddaughter to the movies yesterday and I tried to persuade her to see a comedy, and we ended up watching Anacondas (laughs) in a very dark jungle where giant snakes eat people. (laughs) And she um, loves to get scared. She adores it. The scarier, the better. She wanted to go to an even scarier movie, and I wouldn't go. (laughs) So there's a kind of of, um, delicious pleasure in fear if we um, allow ourselves to enjoy it. But it's a joke. The giant snakes were a joke. Because if we were really in a jungle, and there really was a giant snake, it would be a completely different situation. Usually in a very frightening situation, we don't get scared until it's all over. When it's happening, we're just dealing with it. 
And when it's over, we start to think. And the thinking gets everything going again. And of course, fear protects us, keeps us from going against a red light or doing something stupid. One of the gestures of Buddha was the fear not. It was one of the kindest ways that he was with people, was simply to give them the gift of feeling safe, at least for a moment, to feel safe. It's okay. It's really all right. And we can do that for each other. We can easily and always do that for each other. That can be a practice all by itself. So I think that's all I want to say from this end, but I would Love to hear from you all, um, have some discussion and answer some questions if there are some. Yes. Angie, I have some sort of mental boulders that keep on coming back into my life that are very fear And they're really embedded pretty deeply. And a lot of it is sort of like that Gothic Catholicism. I was raised, you know, yes. 1950s Catholicism, where this feeling of unworthiness—it's mm. that I'll be paralyzed by my unworthiness—and it's just sort of the subtext, and it'll just sort of taint everything. Yeah. And so I'll have this flavor, this flavor of fear that will pervade me. Just from that, that, that feeling of being on the Oh, I know that very well. Yeah, it's, it's a cultural thing, I think. It's our conditioning. Along with the truth of things. That, in a way, we are unworthy. So, um, it, it's, it's a little bit complicated, but not really. Um, because the truth, of course, is that we're imperfect and a mess in a way. And in another way, we're completely perfect and everything is fine. I write about it because I'm a writer. And uh, it's, it's very helpful to, because it comes straight up and, and you look straight at it that way, as if into a mirror. And, and see what, what it really is and what it's really saying so that you can, um, off the end of your own pencil, you can, you can see and hear what you can't see and hear by just um, listening to the voices inside you because they go on a, on a straight track. You know, and it's a deep gouged track, so it never goes off. It's always the same story. But if you can write about it or draw about it mm-hmm. or sing about it, mm-hmm. something out of, out of another place of you, the bigger place of you, then you begin to 
um, see it more clearly. I forget that. Yeah. I, I do the Prokop Journal workshop. Oh, yeah. And, and sometimes your body will write something that, oh, I say, oh, yeah, I am completely unworthy. That's wonderful. You know, sometimes Maya, it's, it's Mara, you get Mara, and you know, okay, okay, all the little Maras get in the car seats, you strap them all your Maras in, and it's like, you drive down, and like, oh, we're really full today. And sometimes I can remember to enjoy that I am so warped. Oh, God, it's really horrible. <laughs> but other times, like recently, I've been like an evil slime ball. Mm. You're doing great. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) My teacher used to say, sometimes I feel like a dirty rag. (laughs) And I can't wash myself enough. No, it's just the way we are. But we can befriend it. Mm. Invite Mara in for tea whenever we can. So it stays in balance. Yeah. What does Buddha say about breaking uh, the cycle of fear or the habit of Not that I've seen, not directly. Um, and it is a habit, isn't it? So that. I think like breaking any habit, it means making an effort, you know, making a determination first. And that means seeing it, seeing what, what, what it is, what the causes and conditions are that bring it about in the first place. And sometimes they're very, very old. You know, sometimes they go back to childhood or babyhood and something frightened us very much and then something reminds us 40 years later, and we're back into that fearful place. So sometimes it takes a lot of dredging to to understand it. And maybe it's not so necessary to do that as much as it is to simply recognize when it happens and then be with it. Be straightforwardly with it and see what happens. Usually we turn away. I can't stand that. It's too painful. It's too difficult. But if we can manage to bring ourselves to be with it, um, it's never what we think it's going to be, ever. It's always something else. It helps to have friends and to have friends to help us see it sometimes. You know, if you have a close friend who could... um, work with you. That's very helpful too. And you have to be brave. It's about courage. Samuel Johnson said, courage is the first virtue because without it, it's very difficult to exercise any of the others. (laughs) Courage. It's difficult to exercise any what? Any of the other virtues. Yeah. Well, it's very perverse because I can get along quite well in the city and during the day um, conquering this fear or that fear or not 
fear not coming up. Um, I manage, I'm a fearful person, but it's in the middle of the night when it becomes brilliant and lit up. Mm-hmm. And, and then it becomes insomnia. And as, if, as you were speaking, I realized, oh, the fear is of insomnia. <laughs> and I can't in, invite Mara in for tea because it's got caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, if he keeps me up all night <clears throat> wrestling with him, then I can't do anything the next day because I'm That's exhausted. right. That's right. <laughs> You're caught, aren't you? Yes. You know, the, the middle of the night thing feels like that because we actually, they're brain chemicals that are let loose in us around three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it, it completely distorts our way of thinking. So if we wake up at three, we often feel tremendous anxiety and any little thing that bugged us during the day becomes huge and very bothersome in the middle of the night because of the chemistry. So uh, once I learned that, it was I, I felt much better about it. I felt like it wasn't my fault, one, which it sort of feels like, you know, you're thrashing around thinking, why can't I go back to sleep? But it's the system. The system is, is just um, doing what it does. And if you can let it do it, what, it, what it's doing, it, it, it isn't so um, bothersome. You may not sleep anymore, but, it's <laughs> but it's, it doesn't feel like such an enormous personal problem anymore. And I think a lot of things that we do are like that, that we, we feel is, it's my doing. It's, I, I have to take care of this, and it's my fault if it's not working right. And it's to do with the endocrine system or something, that it's just the way we're put together and that, that our bodies are working. And because our world is put together with the brain on top and our training is all about training the intellect and um, trying to whip the body into some kind of um, I don't know obedience you could say if we can just keep this keep this guy going somehow without realizing this is this is us but it isn't us in a personal way it's us being taken care of, being held and carried. And so we can have a relationship that's, that's um, very um, tender about our body and how it works so that we don't need to feel so badly about us. Does that make sense? I feel tender about my endocrine system. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> truly. Truly. Without it, you'd be in very bad shape. <laughs> but yes, tender about the whole thing. So it's taking care of me. How? Where would you be without it? 
Oh, the three o'clock hormones. Well, who knows? I don't know why we're put together that way. I truly don't. But it's one of those things that we can either fight against and detest. It means that we're fighting against our own self and detesting a part of ourself. So that's what I mean about being tender. As long as we're separating ourselves into two, the one that wants to be perfect in some way and the one that isn't perfect, then we're in constant contention when we're just one. So it's, it's just ideas that are battling themselves in, in our minds when the reality is living itself. You know, making spit in our mouths and our hair is growing another millimeter and (coughs) our stomach is digesting our supper and, you know, it's all going along pretty well for a while. For a while. Well, I look forward to the next episode tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Let me know what happens. Exactly, exactly. And it's a wonderful practice, really, because once you become aware of it, then it's, it's a signal to stop and, and stop spinning stories and be present. So in, in a funny way, we can be grateful for the fear as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you. Yes. I didn't hear the name of the film. What the belief do we know? I think it's a combat. It's a film that just sort of skirted the surface here. It's still in Marin County. It's quite a wonderful film. Um, and it's about the see that movie. <laughs> oh, in San Jose? Oh, well, that's doable. Huh. Good. Great. Thank you. We should all go see it. And get real. <laughs> could, you relate, could you relate intention to your topic of fear? In terms of perhaps a premeditated, guided response to that fear does I think that's what we were talking about back there, that um, if we use it as a sign, you know, a sign from heaven that, that fear is, kicks in and then we get a chance to look at it. Either that or we run away from it or we get carried away by it. No. Best to wait and see what it is. I mean, if there's an anaconda coming at you, then you better. <laughs> I mean, these were big anacondas. <laughs> but yes, intention, of course. The intention to see clearly what, as clearly as possible, what, what's really going on. 
because if, if we think we know, that's prejudice. We've already prejudged the situation. That's what prejudice is. So if we're, we allow our minds to be open to see what's really there, then we're not as likely, for one, to be frightened first. We're more likely to be curious. And then based on that curiosity, you know, an open-minded curiosity, we can learn a lot. And sometimes we can be really scared because we can see that it's dangerous, something dangerous is there and we should take care of ourselves or whoever's in, in trouble. So intention is, is important, but the intention is just to really be there. Yeah. You know, the other thing about waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning that I've forgotten about, I have a friend who um, wakes up at 3 o'clock off and on and has all her life. And once she learned to sit, she just used that as her time to sit. She had next to her bed a little altar with a candle and her cushion. And if, it, if she wakes up, she just gets up and sits for sometimes an hour, sometimes 20 minutes, and then gets back to bed again. She says she doesn't always go back to sleep, but she always um, feels like it's a good thing to do. So you might try that too. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Yes. It's funny. I was I raised my hand earlier to make that same comment. Ah. When I have three, um, um, I get myself out of bed because I realize that I'm just gonna roll and struggle and the sheets over my head and then the pillow, <laughs> trying to figure out how to get rid of all those thoughts and and I sit. And maybe 20 minutes, and I go back to bed, and there's something calm about mm-hmm. my whole spirit and my experience, and a lot of times I'll fall back to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. system and I'd never heard about this 3 a.m. low in the endocrine system before but it makes a certain sense to me that our bodies prepare for death over a very long period of time Mm -hmm. and habituate themselves at levels we can't begin to understand and that maybe the rhythms of the endocrine system are part of that habituation so that when death does come, it can come to us as a friend. So that's, that's one thing, and that's a complete guess, mm-hmm. except that I know about the three of Interesting. The other thing is actually about intention. Uh, and this is where Zen actually is different from Theravada practice. And when the monks wanted to go meditate in the graveyard and were scared out of their wits, the Buddha taught them the medicine. Mm-hmm. 
because loving kindness is the specific remedy for healing. So we have that, and it's not always an easy remedy. It's not some kind of, okay, I'll put a bandage on it and go away. Because I'm sure there are people in this room who've done meta practice for many, many, many more years than I have with a lot more seriousness than that. But even the little bit of it that says we're not helpless, that we have within us as one of as part of our fundamental equipment loving kindness and that when we look at our fear or what frightens us with loving kindness then the fear itself shifts it stops being the focal point and the focal point becomes what is it that's in front of us which is another way of saying we get to see what's actually there. But having resisted the Metta Sutra for so many years, I then fell passionately, deeply, bottomlessly in love with it. (laughs) (laughs) And specifically because it does bring it does bring a tool an intentional tool to this huge problem of fear and terror and what do we do when it's all impossible. What we do is we love. Imperfectly. (laughs) (laughs) But there's, you know, there is this meeting point with Ben which says that what it allows for, what it helps us with, is precisely this process of seeing clearly. And that seeing clearly is, of course, what we're doing. Well, maybe on that note. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. We do the Metta Sutra now, too. I fell in love with it myself, so <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I took it back from the retreat last year and taught my staff. And, uh, yeah. We don't go anywhere without it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's sit for a little bit longer.